Father, we ask that as we open your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you'd speak and that you'd make us attentive to your voice. God, we walked into this place today from so many different places in our life. Uh, Some of us are hopeful and joyful and have had a great weekend. Others of us feel disoriented and discouraged. Some of us can't even believe we're sitting in church today, God. But we ask that wherever you find us, that you might meet us there and you would take us to where you want us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So yesterday I had the privilege, the opportunity to participate in a wedding yesterday that was here in our church. And um, so we had the, the wedding in the sanctuary and then across the street was a reception. And it was so beautiful, they had taken the outdoor amphitheater and just transformed it into the most lovely outdoor reception with the best food. And being at this wedding and reception, it reminded me of my own wedding and reception. And it called to mind actually a... Um, an an odd debate I got in with our DJ before our wedding. So he had asked for a list of songs we wanted played at the wedding. And so Alicia and I talked together and we sent him a list of, of, of songs, basically our playlist. And he got it and he called me and he was very concerned. And he was very concerned because he looked at the playlist and there was not one Christian artist on this playlist. And, um, and, you know, I mean, this was the 90s and it wasn't exactly the pinnacle of the Christian music scene. But I remember he said, um, he said, you know, there's, there's got to be some Christian artists that you can include. He said, for example, you know, what about um, Michael W. Smith and Stephen Curtis Chapman and DC Talk, the New Thing um, album? Like the one you guys all loved, right? So um, he, he starts rattling off all these Christian artists. He's like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? I'm like, no, 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 no. And then um, at that point in my life, I was too young in my faith to actually come into, uh, to, into the knowledge of the Gaithers and the Gaither music. And if I had at that point, I would have themed my entire reception around the <laughs> Gaithers and my wedding. And, um, but at, at any rate, you know, we got in this debate and, and, and then... As the bait kind of like starts reaching, it's getting a little bit more heat, and he's like, don't you want to have anything Christian about this wedding? And I just thought to myself, like, you know, Alicia and I, we have sought to honor God with our entire relationship up to this point. And we are gonna stand before God in the presence of a community of people who love us and covenant our lives together. And we will seek to be faithful to that marriage covenant. And we're going to celebrate with friends and family in the presence of God. And I looked at him, I said, everything is Christian about this wedding. Like, what are you talking about? You know, but it does raise a question, I think. I think, I think below that debate, which I grant is kind of unique to the fundamentalist communities that I was a part of growing up. I mean, probably most of you have never wrestled with, like, should, do I have enough Christian music, you know, at a wedding reception or something like that? But I think below that debate was this question. What is it that makes something genuinely and authentically Christian anyway? Or we could put it like this. How do we distinguish that which is authentically Christian from that which is only superficially Christian? And, you know, this is an important question in this cultural moment. You know, in an article entitled The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors, the author, Ben Sixsmith, who himself is not a believer, 
started to discuss the reality that in America we are proliferating uh, types of pseudo-religions, which is basically current American ideologies on the right and the left that masquerade as Christianity. And so they're basically, if you scratch below the surface, what you find are the ideologies of the left and right, but they are smoothed over with the veneer of Christian language and Christian symbolism, but below the surface, they are not actually Christian. In a, in a brilliant book entitled Bad Religion, author Ross Dutho, who's a, uh, a Christian, who's a New York Times columnist, put it like this. He said, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. He said, oftentimes on the secular left, the complaint is, oh, there's too much religion in America. And then on the right, there's a complaint, there's just not enough religion in political life. He said, the problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in their place. He said the real problem is the demise of traditional Christianity and then the insertion of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. But that raises a question, doesn't it? How is it that we distinguish between that which is authentically Christian and that which is a pseudo-version of Christianity? How do we distinguish between the true thing or that which is only superficially Christian? And that is actually the question that the book of 1 John was intended to answer. You see, John was writing at a time where he was the last living apostle. He's about ready to die and depart from the scene. And he pins for us what is arguably or likely the last piece of Christian writing to be added into the New Testament. And what his concern is, is to identify, to, to be crystal clear on the nature of what genuine, authentic Christianity is over against all of its competitive pseudo-Christianities. And he speaks with radical clarity. There is not a lot of gray or nuance. It is black and white. It is love and hate. It is light and darkness for John. And so what he essentially says is that, uh, you know, for, for those who are asking this question, oh, my guy appeared just in time for my drawings. Um, some of you were concerned. But if you can imagine people in the first century asking this question, like there are these teachers coming into the church and kind of like drawing, you know, saying, well, we got Jesus and we got God. And, and the disciples are like, but, or the Christians are like, but what about him and what about him and who, who do we trust anyway? And John says this, there are basically two issues you need to pay attention to. Number one is doctrine and number two is life. Number one, doctrine. This is orthodoxy. It is correct belief. It is, what is it that is at the heart of Christian faith? You see, Christianity is a knowledge tradition. And there is a faith that is to be faithfully passed on from generation to generation and to be guarded and to be proclaimed and to be taught. And so he's going to clarify for us what that heart of Christian doctrine is in a couple of weeks from now. Actually, John's not going to clarify it in a couple of weeks from now. I'm going to clarify it as we look at those texts in a couple of weeks from now. Okay, some of you were confused. Is John going to be here in a couple of weeks? <laughs> but the second issue is not orthodoxy that he's concerned with. 
He says, you will know them by orthopraxy. And that's not right doctrine, that's right living. And he clarifies for us in our text that we're looking at today what an authentic, genuine Christian lifestyle looks like. And he says, if you want to know, like, what, what is, you know, among all the different cacophony of voices uh, in American culture that are professing to be Christian, what does genuine, authentic Christianity look like? And he clarifies that for us in this text. And look what he says. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, and by this we know. They, they're like, how do we know who knows God? How do we know who's really got the right Christian message? And he says, here's how you know. By this, we know that we have come to know him. And what he's going to do in the rest of this passage is he's going to identify three distinctive markers of a genuine Christian life. He's going to clarify for us what is at the heart of authentic, genuine Christian living. And in some ways, he's given us three different things. Uh, in another way, he's given us the same thing stated three different ways. But what I want you to see, number one, is he says, look, what, what, how do you know what, what genuine, authentic Christianity, what does a genuine Christian life look like? He says, number one, it is marked by obedience. Humble, submissive obedience to the commands of Jesus. And look at how he puts it. And he says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. You know, Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, just before he was about to ascend to the right hand of his father, gathered his disciples together and he commissioned them. And he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said this, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. How much? Everything I have commanded you. Dallas Willard once quipped that uh, that was the great omission from the great commission. The Great Commission was go and make disciples. And, and, and he says the church it many, many times is preoccupied with going out and not getting disciples, but decisions. And getting people to cross the line, but actually seeing people's lives conformed in obedience to everything Jesus commands them is something that's been omitted for far too long. And so he says, by this you know that you know him by keeping his commandments. We could put it in a diagnostic question. Are you serious about keeping the commandments of Jesus? You say, well, which ones? Well, perhaps the best place to start would be the Sermon on the Mount. And so now you're, 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 in, a, you're in a conflict with a brother or sister. What do you do? You're on your way to church. Jesus says, stop what you're doing and do whatever you can, whatever's in your power to reconcile with your brothers and sisters. You know, you, you've, been, you've been maybe wrestling with destructive lusts that make you objectify those of the opposite sex. Jesus says, root all of that out, cut it off. Jesus says, be faithful to your marriage commitments. He says, be simple and honest in your speech. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. You have somebody who's upset with you and they are spitefully speaking against you and you know your natural impulse. You want to speak critically back to them or at least about them behind their back. Amen. Can I get a witness? Anybody else? Jesus says, bless them. Pray for them. 
He says, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, pray, pray, bless them. He says, love your enemies, not just your friends, do them good. Think about how is it that I could, I, could, I could do them good? How can I work and will the good of the other? This is what it means to love. And, and don't just do your deeds of righteousness before other people to be seen by them. You know, then you're gonna have your reward for, from, you know, on, on earth. He says, no, but have a singleness of heart and do your religious devotion for an audience of one, namely God. I give for the honor and glory of God. I pray for God's glory and honor. I, I, I'm fasting because I care about God. And stop judging your neighbor. Instead, be somebody who's radical about examining your own life and taking the log out of your own eye before you go examining the speck in your neighbor's eye. The person who is an authentic, genuine disciple of Jesus is insistent on and serious about keeping these commandments of Jesus. And John presses this further and he states it negatively. He says, look, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John says talk is cheap. He says, look, it's not enough to, uh, you know, in our culture, virtue signaling is incredibly popular. Is you got to let everyone know that you are in the know about all the right things and signal that out there by liking a post or by posting something or whatever. And of course, Christians want to project their own identity with a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or a song or whatever. But he says, look, what you profess is of little value if it's not accompanied by a life of faithful obedience to the commands of Jesus. And so he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word Whoever is faithful to the commands, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you know, the, 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 the mark, the defining characteristic of a genuine, authentic Christian is not your politics. It's not your voting record. It's not um, your opinions about the ideological arguments of our day. The, the, the defining characteristic is not even your church attendance. It's not how engaged you are at church. It's not the fact that you might have read your Bible or have a lot of Bible knowledge. He says the important thing is, is your life being conformed to the way of life that Jesus has commanded us to live? This is the defining characteristic. By this, you will know that you know him. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, you know, voting is unimportant or politics are unimportant. Have opinions about the ideological arguments of our day. And sure, go to church, please, all the time. Serve in church, give faithfully, read your Bible, but you can do all of that and still be absent of a genuine relationship with God. And the evidence of that is that your life is not changing. You're not any less anxious than you were before you were a Christian. You're not any less fearful. You're, you're not any less self-righteous. You're not any less angry and bitter and you're gossipy or whatever. That stuff is driven out as you are seeking to conform your life in obedience to the way of Jesus. So number one, Mark, is obedience. Number two is Christ-likeness. Look what he says next. He says, and by this we may know that we are in him. <laughs> Do you see the repetition? Here's how you know that you are in him. 
This language of being in him is talking about having a life that's rooted in Jesus. Like you're deeply connected with Jesus, you've been baptized and, and, and you identify with Jesus and, and, and you, he says, by this you can know that you are truly in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk even as he walked. In other words, to be a follower of Jesus is to become more and more like Jesus. And that makes sense. You know, the, 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 the most common word to describe a Christ follower in the New Testament is the word disciple. It's used well over 200 times. The word Christian is only used three times. Disciple, well over 200 times. Disciple is an apprentice. If you are an apprentice to somebody, you attach yourself to them and you seek to learn from them how to do their craft and how to do their trade. And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means we apprentice ourselves to Jesus and we learn how to live the good life. Jesus is not just the savior of the world. He's the smartest person that ever lived, amen? And so if you wanna know how to live well, you gotta attach yourself to him and follow his own way of life, his manner of life. Now, again, this in some ways is a restatement of what we just said under the first point. Because to be obedient to the commands of Jesus is not all that dissimilar to be becoming like Jesus, right? Because Jesus himself is the perfect embodiment of his own commands, isn't he? And so he says, attach yourself to him and, and seek to live in the same way in which he walked, you know, Dallas Willard, a uh, great spiritual thinker and leader uh, of the last, you know, 60, 80 years, just brilliant, brilliant. In, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he, he grieves and he bemoans over the fact that Christians have set their sights way too low in terms of the quality of life that God intends for us to live. A life of beautiful goodness, a freedom from anxiety, of deep security in love, of, of just a radical readiness to forgive and open up your heart and life and be hospitable and kind and merciful and just and righteous. He's just like, they, I mean, isn't this what you want for your life? I mean, who at the end of their life imagines that at their, at their funeral, you know, if you were gonna be watching your funeral, who of us wants to hear people say, you know, you know, Fred, they, 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 too bad they're now dead. But Fred, you know, they, they, you know they, they really knew how to spend money. And they knew how to waste their time watching YouTube clips and binging Netflix. They were so good. Like, nobody wants to be known for that, do they? What you want to be known for is the virtue and the character that has come in your life. You are generous and loving and hospitable, people opened up around you. They, they could be vulnerable with you. You were so kind. You reached out to your neighbor. You sought to understand them before you demanded that they understand and listen to all of your opinion. You want people to know you for your character and virtue. And Willard says, we've set our starts way too low. The image of Jesus is ultimately our goal, like to be conformed to his image. So he says, look, what a follower of Jesus is, it's somebody who is seeking to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, to walk, to live, even as Jesus walked and lived. So number one, Mark is obedience to the radical and beautiful and countercultural commands of Jesus. 
Mark 2 is likeness to the beautiful and the winsome and the compelling character of Jesus. And Mark 3 is a genuine, authentic Christian is marked preeminently by love. You know, of all of the commands, John now centers in on one command, the command that stands at the heart of the ethical teaching of Jesus, and it is the love command. This is the heart, this is getting to the very heartbeat of the whole thing, is this command to love. You know, Jerome, old church historian and theologian and pastor, he wrote in the fourth century about the apostle John, and he said that John would be carried around in his old age when he couldn't even walk, when he was in his 90s, and he hardly had the strength to get up and he would just barely lift up his head and, and the, the church would say, teach us, John. Tell us, you know, this is the last living apostle. You knew him, you saw him. Tell us, like, give us the goods, John. And John would just lift up his head and he would say, my little children, love one another. And Jerome said that the church, after time, got a little frustrated with this because they're like, can't you give us something more? And, and, and John, in essence, said, this is, this is as good as it gets. And when you get this one down, we'll move on to something else. And so look at what John says about the love command. He says, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment. It's interesting. John is gonna say that this commandment to love one another is both old and new. It's old in this sense. He says, it's old because you have heard it from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And he's speaking here of the reality that from their very conversion, the very first ethical instruction they received was love one another. This is Christianity 101. And he says, it, it, it was, it was, it's as old as the gospel itself. The reality that God in Christ by his extravagant love has redeemed you is, is coupled right alongside of this reality and now receive this love and be a conduit of this love into the world. Love one another. He says this commandment is old. But in another sense, he says it's new. He says at the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away. He says it's Old in the sense that you know this, you've heard this, but it's new. It's new in this sense. That in Jesus, the command to love gained a brand new and radical and touchable and physical and visceral embodiment like the world had never seen before. In Jesus, God's love is incarnate before us. God's glad, self-giving, sacrificial, extravagant, breathtaking, stunning love takes flesh among us in Christ, giving his love for his, not just his friends, but his enemies. So it's new in the sense that there's a new embodiment. That's why he says it's true in him. You can see it. But it's also new in its extent. You see, previously in the Old Testament, they were commanded to love their neighbor as themselves, but they understood their neighbor to be a very limited circle. It was the people who looked like them, who voted like them, who had the same heritage as them, who, who, who were just like them. They had the same preferences and tastes. He says, stop it. 
There's a new emphasis. This love goes out to the whole world. It goes out beyond your your neighbors and beyond your friends, even to your enemies. And it is this kind of love that ultimately will bring healing to the world. And it's new not only in its embodiment and in its extent, but it's new in its emphasis. You know, up until this point in human history, Judaism had a command to love, but not the emphasis that Christianity gave to it. And Roman, Greco-Roman religions, yeah, they talked a little bit about love, but it wasn't the thing. Christianity put the ethic of sacrificial, self-giving love right at the heart of what it meant to be human. And said, look, if you want to be like God, if you want to know God, it is manifest in this extravagant experience and embodiment of love. And he says it's new in this emphasis because the, the, the darkness, he says, is passing away. Get this, this is a cool text. He says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You know, in the ancient Hebrew imagination, they believed that cosmic history was divided into two ages. This present age, which was counted, which was marked out by darkness and death and evil, and then the age to come, which would be marked out by light and freedom and justice and love. And what John says is that because of the advent of Christ, because of the incarnation, because of the embodiment of God among us in Christ, when the light became light and walked among us. And when the light who became light or became life and walked among us was put in a tomb and walked out of that tomb three days later, John says, the darkness has now been put on notice. The darkness is passing away and this light that was brought into the world in Jesus is the thing that ultimately will overcome all of creation. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. And so he says, look, whoever lives in this light, do you believe you are a part of the age to come, what God is doing in the future? Do you believe that you are spiritually enlightened? He says, whoever says they are spiritually enlightened, who are in the light, but hate their brother, they're still in darkness. You know, there's voices right now in our culture. You you know it as well as I do. People send you links to listen to voices or podcast to hear voices or you hear the incessant cacophony of these voices on news channels or in social media and these voices are voices that trigger us to be against the other, to constantly other them out there who are out to get us. You know, we, we're the good ones, but they are out there trying to take what we want and get away from us and, ah, you know, and and they're triggering you to anger to be against your neighbor. But the light of God that is broken into the world in Jesus is a command, it's calling us, it's an embodiment to be for our neighbor and to be embodiments of God's love. And so he says, whoever loves his brother and sister abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling. It's as if he's saying, look, when you love others, you see clearly. But when you are just bitter and angry and upset, you're always stumbling around. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. It's 
So now let's stand back and let's just, let's just pause and let's just clarify what John is saying to us and then let's just apply it for a minute. So the question, what is an authentic, genuine, you know, expression of Christianity? What does it look like? John says, look at your life. The primary evidence of knowledge of God of experience with God, of relationship with God, is a life that is marked out, is characterized by obedience to the commands of Jesus, Christ-likeness, and radical sacrificial love. It's that simple, isn't it? It couldn't be more clear. Let's just press this home just a little bit. I, I think what John is trying to do in our text is I think that John is giving us with this a criteria whereby we can evaluate ourselves as well as evaluate what passes off as Christianity and Christian voices in our culture. The primal question, what kind of life is it producing? Is there obedience? Is there neighbor love? Is this drawing you towards other people? What is it producing in you? That is the question. The primary evidence of knowledge of God, of experience of God, of relationship with God is a life marked out by obedience, Christ-likeness, and love. And, you know, th this is helpful. It's really, really helpful. I remember back when I was in high school, I took a home ec class when I was a ninth grader, and I had never done any cooking or baking in my life. And I can remember um, the, uh, the teacher would demonstrate and they would bring in a little baked good or maybe a, a, something that they had cooked up. And then they would set it on the table before us and they'd let us have a little taste of it. We would see what it was supposed to look like and what it was supposed to taste like. You know, kind of like on the Great British Bake Off when uh, Prue and Paul share with them kind of like their perfected version of the baked... Are, are, we, are we together on the Great British Bake Off? <laughs> Listen, if you love Jesus... But you see the example, and you're like, that's what it should look like. And then you start doing your own thing, and you're like cooking it up, and you just start looking at your thing, and you're like, mine doesn't look like that. <laughs> and that's an indication that something went wrong. And you can look at your life, and to the degree to which your life is being pulled away from genuine love and humility and mutual understanding and grace and kindness and righteousness and goodness and self-control and faith. To the degree to which you're pulled away from that stuff by whatever it is that you're going, getting into, you could say something has gone wrong. You know, when I was in college, uh, there was a, a short season in my life where I got all wrapped up in this very precise theological system. And I had all my fine points down and I read theology books. And I remember at that point thinking that because I was reading so much theology, I was getting a great in with knowledge of God. I can remember even, you know, I was like 19 years old. And here I had a grandma who was just an embodiment of the love of Jesus, who was a faithful prayer warrior and everything. I remember at one point thinking like, oh, poor grandma, she doesn't know what I know. Right? Yeah. 
And I felt like I had some special knowledge that everyone else didn't have. And if they just had it, they would know. I, I, and, and a strange thing happened. As my knowledge of theology was increasing, concurrently, my Christian character was going down. And I was becoming slowly a little bit more self-righteous, a little more snarky, a little more withdrawn, a little more condescending toward my brothers and sisters. Something went dramatically wrong. And listen, it is very easy in our culture right now to get immersed and to kind of grow in, in some special knowledge you're getting from, you know, whatever side of the spectrum, from progressive ideology, you're all of a sudden getting, you're aware of what's really going on and nobody else sees it like you do. Or you're, you know, immerse yourself in some rabbit hole of conspiracy theories or whatever. Or you're just being fired up every night by watching Fox News, you're on social media, or you're reading the editorial page on the New York Times, and it's triggering you to be angry towards your neighbor. And what's happening is the more you're getting knowledge, something's going down inside of you. And something is wrong with that. And I think what, what John is encouraging us to do is like, look at your life, look at what's producing in your life. Genuine knowledge of God in relationship with Jesus actually grows out in conformity to the commands of Jesus and in, in likeness to Jesus and in the embodiment of the love of Jesus. This is just what begins to happen. Now, let me just uh, say, caveat that. Who among us is as obedient and as Christ-like and as loving as we ought to be? Anybody in the room, you walked in today, you're like, you know what, like, I should be at an eight, but I'm really at a 10. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm exceeding expectations this week on my love and on my, you know. What John teaches in 1 John 2 needs to be caveated by what he taught in 1 John 1. Namely that, while it's true that if you say that you know God and yet you don't obey the commands, you're a liar, it's also the case that if you say that you're without sin, you're also a liar. That all of us carries around pockets of brokenness and the reality is, is that we're all on a journey of becoming. And not all of us begin at the same place. Some of us begin with deep trauma or abuse or something difficult in our, like you've got genetics that are working against you, you've got family history and dysfunction, and, 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 and you, you just think like, I wish people knew what I was dealing with from the beginning because they would see that I've really progressed here. And you just don't always know that looking from the outside. So be careful in judging others. You know, I just got through reading a book by a Holocaust survivor whose name is Edith Ava uh, Edgar. And... It's this incredible book. She went through Auschwitz when she was 16 years old. She came out, wound up moving to America. Uh, when she was 40 years old, she entered into a PhD program to get a PsyD, and she became a therapist. And she studied under Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which is another book about the Holocaust. And she just has this profound story that she tells, and she has kind of a psychological analysis of everything she went through. And, you know, she comes and she shares about the turning point. Should we get this picture off so it's not bothering you? <laughs> but she comes to a turning point in her life. 
And the turn came when she chose forgiveness. And she said, inspired by Corrie ten Boone and her radical forgiveness that she extended to her, the very guards that killed her family. And she saw the healing that came in her life because of her, she just said, I, and, and she wound up traveling to Germany and she worked through this process and she, she forgave. But that came 50 years after the trauma she endured. And it's a process. And very often, we, we, we come at this journey of, you know, becoming more like Jesus, of conforming our lives to the sermon from all different places, and it does take time. And so, I don't want to discourage you, but I do want to inspire us as a church. And I want to encourage us as a church and say, look, you know, we raised the question a couple weeks ago, you know, as we move into a new season of life together, you know, our building project's about ready to get done, and we're asking that question, what kind of church will we be? Can we say that, yeah, we, we, in a few weeks, we're going to look at being orthodox, being clear on theology and doctrine. That's important. And we're going to talk about that, the very essentials, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, you know, the core doctrines of the faith, the incarnation, the Trinity, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to, we're going to get there. But can we say that we are also going to be a church that is about likeness to Jesus. And that what we're going to be concerned about with each other is not whether or not somebody ticks all of your boxes on the things you think and believe that would make everything perfect and right in the culture we live in. Can we be a community that is most concerned about character and about character formation and to say, you know, Jesus came into this world not simply to make bad people forgiven people, Jesus came into this world to redeem lost and broken people and to bring healing and to make us a different kind of people. You know, the end game for this is conformity into the image of Jesus. That's where you're headed. Friends, that's good news, isn't it? And so may we be a people that is preeminently concerned about that issue for each other. And we're walking together and we're not evaluating each other primarily. Yeah, let's, we, can, we can debate and discuss. Let's, I'm all for that. But let's not evaluate each other's faith commitment primarily based upon opinions that we have about theology or politics or some of the ideological wars that are happening in 21st century America. How insignificant is all of that compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how insignificant are your opinions of all the things you got figured out to a genuine character transformation? I mean, none of you wants at your deathbed for somebody to say, they got all their opinions right. Boy, they could argue a case. <laughs> Stop it, you know? Likeness to Jesus. That's what we want to pursue together, amen?